All right, we have two announcements. Number one is that men's prayer breakfast is going to be uh, on April 15th, Saturday at 7.30 in the morning. So make your plans to join us for breakfast on that um, on that Saturday Saturday morning. And then um, there'll be a, a, a ordination at Preston City Bible Church. I know Jeremy Thomas and... I think Charlie Clough and I are supposed to be on the ordination council, so we'll be going up there for that. On that, I'll be going up there for that weekend, uh, and so Scott uh, Ulrich will be here. So that's it for announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. I know nobody here has sinned in at least the last minute, but we need to be ready and prepared. So let's uh, bow our heads together and I'll open in prayer after a few moments of silent prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word, and your word is more valuable to us than banks full of gold. It is more valuable to us than anything that we can imagine, and should be more important to us than anything that we can imagine. And because it is your word that gives meaning and value and significance to our lives, and apart from your word, we have no meaning, we have no truth, no enlightenment, no guidance. Father, we pray that as we study tonight in what is a difficult book, not a positive book on the spiritual life, but one on cultural collapse, as we see it around us, I think that's what makes it hard for a a lot of folks. We see this every day. And Father, we pray that we might be strong and steadfast in the midst of these difficult times. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 18. Judges chapter 18. And we are looking at the impact of apostasy, and we'll be looking at that in light of what is described in chapter 18. If you look at the last verse in Judges 17, Judges 17, 13, we read, Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. You know, Micah is like a lot of Christians. There are just a lot of Christians who have a very superstitious view of God. They have a view of God that sort of treats him like a good good luck charm. They think of their relationship with God in terms of some sort of formula. About 40 years ago, I was teaching at the College of Biblical Studies when it met at KHCB, and there was a woman in my class, and I had made some comments. I'm not even sure what the comments were that I made about God. And then afterward, in the hallway during the break, she made some comments. She said, God is like a a Coke machine. You put in the right amount of money, and you're going to get the right thing back, just what you want. And sadly, there are a lot lot of Christians who, who think of that. They think of God in terms of some rigid formula instead of a relationship. 
They think of God as a quick fix solution. We've all been in churches where when the pastor is talking about uh, really profound problems that people have, that the crowd expands. And when you're working your way through Judges or you're working your way through Leviticus or you're working your way through other uh, passages that don't seem to be quite as relevant at the moment, that the crowd thins out. People are self-absorbed, and that's a reflection of it. We, you know, one of the things that has so impressed me is I've gone back through uh, some things in this History of Doctrine course. What happens in History of Doctrine is you take about six different theological topics, like the view of God, view of Christ before he came, the view of Christ when he came, the God-man. How does that relate? How do you explain that? It took him 300, 400 years to figure that out. You just give a definition right off the top of your head like it doesn't mean anything and it's easy as kindergarten stuff, but it took three or 400 years to figure out how to correctly state the hypostatic union. And then you get into uh, other areas related to sin and salvation and the work of Christ on the cross and then on into things like eschatology. And what you do is you start in first century and you work your way all the way up to the present in each cycle. So it's like being reminded of a lot of things in, in the cycle of church history. And things have been a lot worse than they are right now. You, you, we hear it all the time. You hear it on the 24-hour news cycle, how bad things are and all the crazy things that are being done. But they've been doing crazy things in pagan civilizations for a lot longer uh, it just you didn't have it on the 24-hour news cycle. And so we we get somehow uh, overwhelmed with, with all of that, and so we don't like to just hear why and how the mechanics are of the collapse of, of a civilization. And I had a friend text me today and made the comment, said, I not only think that we're on the edge of the collapse of America. I think we're on the edge of the collapse of Western civilization. And but for the grace of God, I think that's right. I think that's not going to happen because of what I sense is necessary to have on the scene when um, when the Lord returns or for what is on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation after the rapture. But who knows how that's going to set up. The the structures we see right now and some of the nations we see right now could certainly implode. We don't know. But what we see here is for us as believers to understand that we can't affect a lot of what goes on in Washington. Most of us voted. I dare say most of us voted for the people who had the better ideas of the options. And, And they did not necessarily win. And I would bet that in our day-to-day life, we do the things that we ought to be doing. And it just seems like, like the world around us just keeps cratering. And that's because the world around us is making bad decisions or rejecting God. And so we know where that's going to go, but nobody ever guaranteed us that it wouldn't happen in our lifetimes. A lot of people just had a sort of a, a fake optimism. And we didn't realize how bad it was, but if you really dig down into the cycle of our civilization in in America from the early 1800s, I've said this before recently, and I'll say it more, the seeds of every idea you hear on the streets were planted between 1800 and 1850. And they have come to fruition because the word of God was kicked out of the pulpits by the people in the pews 150 to 100 years ago in the vast majority of mainstream denominational churches in what was known as the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy. And if you sat in on my lectures on 19th century Protestant liberalism in the last uh, couple of weeks, you really get an insight into the ideas that percolated down from the ivory towers in Germany and uh, these German theologians who had thrown the Bible out and thrown God out um, 
and didn't care about God uh, 175, 180 years ago. And then uh, American denominations and American churches fell in love with the academia of Europe. And so we sent the flower of our pulpits to Europe to get their either first or second theological degree. And they came back and they didn't believe anything in the Bible, that it was historically accurate or that the transmission of the text was accurate. And they just saw it as a human book. And so it just leads to a collapse. And that's the kind of thing we see in Judges 18. Because we have this situation that was introduced to us in Judges chapter 17, where Micah has done what is right in his eyes. He has completely rejected everything in God's revelation of the Mosaic law. He has rejected the uh, commands to have one central sanctuary, he has rejected the, the commands that are in, the, in Deuteronomy for the role of Levitical priests. And he finds a Levitical priest who has, who's doing what's right in his eyes as well. And he has rejected uh, what, the, uh, what Deuteronomy has laid down for the role of the priests. And as we saw last time, the real, the real punchline in all of this is he is Moses' grandson. And that just shows that this happened early in the cycle of the judges, not later, and that this this apostasy set in, and it just ate away like like acid at the foundation of the whole civilization of, of Israel. And that's what happened once you take God, once you take the Scripture out of the foundation, then what you're left with is just pure pure relativism. And everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and that's exactly exactly what we see. And so people look at Christianity like any other religion, and they treat they treat God as as just some kind of a quick fix solution for whatever's going on right now. And they have the idea that if they just pray right, if they just use the right words. Remember when the prayer of Jabez was kind of a big thing about 20 years ago, and all this guy was praying for was more land. And people were taking this, that if you just pray that prayer, God will expand your influence. And you have people in the, in the um, prosperity gospel movement, the health and wealth gospel, name it and claim it, and they're doing the same thing. They're treating God as if he is a servant of man, uh, and they just look at God and the Bible as some kind of a superstitious good luck charm, just a talisman. And uh, he's some cosmic genie that if we just rub the bottle the right way, we'll get our three wishes and everything will be fine. So this is a problem that we run into. And it's the same today as it was then because our sin nature is just as evil and corrupt as ever. And it's evil and corrupt for Christians. And if they don't learn the word and learn to apply the word and walk by the spirit, which isn't easy. There, there's not a Christian, not a pastor, not an evangelist that doesn't struggle with sin every single day. And if they tell you they're not, they're lying. Because that is the battle. That's what Ephesians 6, 10 and following is all about. It's all part of that, that spiritual warfare. So what we see in the anatomy of the collapse of the culture is what's laid out for us in Judges 17 and 18, and then again in 19, uh, 19 through, through 21. So we start off in the, first, in the first verse here that reads, In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in, for until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. Now, what I want to do to begin with is ask a couple of questions about uh, the tribe of Dan and just what's going on here. Who are these these Danites? And so we have to look at a few things that, that the Scripture says. And the first point is that the tribe of Dan... Um, the tribe of Dan 
Here we go. I had a verse there at the beginning. I don't know why it was there. We're going to look at the tribe of Dan. There's a street sign in Israel. That's one of the neat things when you go to Israel. All the street signs are biblical names and biblical places and biblical events, and it just you're in the land of the Bible. The tribe of Dan is composed of the descendants of Jacob's fifth son, Dan, through the maid of Rachel. Rachel was barren. Remember, Rachel later, God uh, enables her to get pregnant, and she is the mother of uh, Joseph and then Benjamin, and then she dies right after Benjamin is born. So um, she could not have a child, so she... uh, tells uh, uh, Jacob to take Bilhah as a substitute. And so uh, Dan is the fifth son of his uh, 12 sons. And then, and it's through, through Bilhah the maid. And then Dan only had one son that we know of. But he has a large number of descendants through that one son. So Genesis 3.25 says that the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. So they were the two brothers. And then in Numbers 26.42 says these are the sons of Dan according to their families of Shuham. That's his son. And that name is mentioned a couple other times in different formats, but we'll go with this one here. The family of the Shuamites, these are the families of Dan, and then after that, it lists all of his, all of his descendants. Now, a second thing that we learn about Dan is at the end of Genesis. The end of Genesis, as Jacob is about to die and he's leaning on his staff, he goes down the line of his sons, and he blesses and or curses them. And the the statement that he makes regarding Dan is somewhat cryptic, and there are a number of people who have jumped to the conclusion because it mentions a serpent that, ah, the Antichrist must come from this tribe. Talk about speculative guesswork theology. There's no indication that that's what, what it means at all. Uh, Genesis 49, 16, and 17 says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backwards. Now, let's understand this imagery here. So you have a trail going through the woods, and as we all know, there are snakes in the woods, and so this is a situation where there's a, a poisonous snake, a viper that's uh, curled up along the side of the trail, and along comes a horse that surprises him, and he strikes and bites the horse's heel so that uh, the horse uh, falls down. And so it's a picture of being uh, sort of trapped and attacked and ambushed and the source of, of, of death. And that's what we see in this chapter. Because Dan, the tribe of Dan becomes a source of apostasy for the nation. So it's very likely that this is the fulfillment or at least fits uh, the somewhat cryptic prophecy there in, in Genesis chapter, chapter 49. So that, that's about all we know about Dan. Very little is said except for what we find in Judges 7, 17 and 18. In Joshua, in one of the more boring chapters of the Bible, and there's a few boring chapters of the Bible, let's just admit it, when you're reading through the genealogies and you don't know who any of those names refer to or how they relate to anything else in the Bible, it's, it's, it can put you to sleep. That's why you need a Bible dictionary, because some of the names are important and some of the other details are important, but as you learn and grow, you learn a few things about that. So what you have in Judges 19 is sort of a, it, it's, it's sort of like reading a will. Uh, but the will has to do with real estate. And so the person who has died has uh, all this land and they wanted to divide it up among their heirs. So they're going to give a certain amount of real estate to each, each one of their heirs. 
And so it's reading a list of who go, who gets what piece of real estate, and then it describes what the boundaries are. So unless you're, you know, a contract, a real estate contract lawyer, uh, it, it really isn't one of the most exciting chapters in the scripture. But it gives a lot of insight as you're correlating it to other other things. Remember, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Period. It just that sometimes you have to dig a little more and you have to get beyond first or second or third grade Bible study methods. So as they are um, taking, using a lot, they're not casting lots for something. What they're doing is that they're, they're taking the order of the tribes. And so the person who uh, is seventh in the lineup for getting his, the information about his tribal allotment is uh, the tribe of Dan. And so they're listed there in verses 41 to 46, some of these cities. Now, that's important because we don't really see the boundaries right here, but we see what cities were part of it. And some of those are familiar to you. Uh, we ha- see in verse 41 the mention of Zora and Eshel. Have we seen those recently? Were you paying attention? They were mentioned two or three times in the story of Samson. That's his neighborhood. That's where he grew up. You have Aijalon. Now, Aijalon's mentioned uh, the day that the sun stands still back in Joshua. And Timnah and Ekron are also mentioned in the Samson narrative. So if you feel like you just read those and heard those names right now, uh, maybe you need to go back and reread uh, the Samson narrative. Now, these other ones, some are known, most of them are known, or they think they know where, where they were, uh, but the, some of them may, may not be. So we're able to identify the general area of Dan's territory just because of where these uh, towns are. So remember, uh, Samson is from is this area around Zora and Eshtel. He's from Zora. And then you have uh, Timna mentioned over here, goes down and sees that good-looking, hot Philistine girl, comes back and tells his dad he's got to marry her. Okay, well, she was from Timna. And Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, and Gath are the five cities of the, of the Philistines. So they play a significant role several times in in, in the scriptures. So that's right on the border of the land that God gave to, to Dan. So the Yarkon River up here, for those of you who are either either going to Israel this time or you've been, the Yarkon River is kind of dry now but because so much water is used for irrigation of Tel Aviv, but it goes right through sort of the northern part of, of Tel Aviv. And then you have... Uh, this area that goes around here towards, this is the, the road to Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem's down here. That highway comes down this way. That was the highway that, uh, that the Haganah, the Israeli Haganah fought along when they fought the Arabs in the War for Independence in 1948. And if you read that book, O Jerusalem, it gives a fascinating and well-written and fast-moving account of that war for independence. And I think it was on the third trip that I took to it, took a group to Israel that it seemed like several of the people on the trip had just read that, including myself, but without um, communicating with each other. So that was really interesting, especially the part where uh, they had they were had sent a group in and they were fighting to try to get into the old city outside of the Zion Gate. And when you go to the Zion Gate, you can put your fingers in all the bullet holes that are in the walls there from, from that battle. So it, that's, that's a fascinating area here. So this was all given to Dan, but uh, as we'll learn, Dan just couldn't, couldn't, wasn't, wasn't trusting God to take it. And so they, they completely failed. And Joshua 19.47 tells us, And the border of the children of Dan went beyond these. What does that mean in English? That the border went beyond these. That's almost a meaningless statement in English. 
because it's a difficult uh, idiom in the Hebrew. And literally what it means is that the literal meaning is the territory of the sons of Dan went out from them. It's an idiom for they lost control of it. It went completely out of their hands. And so they were not able to claim what the Lord had given them. It's theirs. That's their title deed. That is their inheritance. The word for inheritance, there's two words that are used here. One's translated inheritance, one's translated possession. But the word that is often translated inheritance is also a word for for possession, that you possess something. And inheritance is not necessarily something that you receive because somebody died, but something that you're given that is to be passed on from generation to generation, and you own it. So that's that's a, a very important concept. And so they lost control of it because they didn't have faith in God. They did not trust him, and they were compromised spiritually, and so they failed to take possession. They had already fallen into the uh, into the trap of relativism, and they no longer believed that God could do what God said he was going to do. And that's, their failure militarily is part of the backdrop for understanding some of the sarcasm that you have in, in this... Um, in this chapter, as far as they were concerned, you know, God was not, God wasn't there. God wasn't, um, wasn't, uh, nobody be- really believed in him, and therefore it was as if God was dead. And in 1966, we had the same kind of thing happen in America. Uh, Time magazine had this on their cover, and this shocked the nation. And the phrase that God is dead goes back to Friedrich Nietzsche in the late 19th century. Uh, But this was really the end result of, by that time, about 150, 160 years of the influence of uh, Protestant liberalism, saying God did not really author the Scripture. They're just man's writings about their experiences with something they thought was God that Moses couldn't have written it for any number of reasons, and it was just written together by some diff- put, put together by some uh, different people. One guy liked the name Jehovah more than others. Another guy liked the name Elohim. So you had the J author and the E author. Uh, you had somebody else write Deuteronomy, and then you had a priest who went in and added all this information about sacrifices. And then there was an editor after the... Uh, after the Babylonian captivity, after their their return uh, from the exile, and he just edited it and put it together. But it really, you know, Moses didn't write anything. You know, most of it's just myth and legend that they borrowed from the Babylonians and the Egyptians. And that's what, if you went to any uh, recognized uh, elite school from... Um, the Ivy League schools in the Northeast to good state-sponsored, taxpayer-funded state universities in Texas. That's what you were taught in sociology classes and history classes and psychology classes. And so by the time you get to the 60s, nobody in our culture was really believing in God anymore. God was dead. That was in 1966. In 1972, six years later, their cover was the Jesus Revolution. That's what that film that just came out was was all about. So what happened is because they couldn't trust God, they completely failed. And it never was about military power, military strength, or being uh, stronger, mightier, and more trained in tactics. Uh, We study the conquest. You look at what happened at Jericho and I and a uh, number of other places, and God gave the most unusual instructions for fighting a battle, but God was the one who fought the battle. The battle was the Lord's, and he was demonstrating that. But later on, when they were trying to take their territory, more and more of the tribes just failed because they didn't trust God. It was as if God was dead. So Ju- Judges 1 describes this, summarizes it, and says the Amorites... Uh, forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. So this, let me go back to the map, 
This area all along the coast here is called the Shefela. This is the coastal plain. And so this, all this area here, and Dan, that would have included uh, Timna and Gezer all the way up into this area would have been the, the lowlands. And so they couldn't take it. And so they, the Amorites forced them back up into the hill country of Samaria and the hill country of, of, um, of Judea. Verse 35 says, And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres and Aijalon and in Shabim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater... Now, the house of Joseph... Joseph had two sons. Can you name them? Manasseh and Ephraim. You know, re- recently somebody told me that, um, that they started reading through the guidebook I put together for Israel. Said, you know, I've been in church for almost all my life. And I've been in Bible studies four, five, six nights a week. And I got about five pages into it and realized I didn't know the Bible. Now, who are Ephraim and Manasseh? They're Joseph's two sons. And so they take the tribal allotments uh, up in the north. You know, here's Manasseh, and the purple down here is Ephraim. Over here, you have the purple here for Ephraim and yellow for West Manasseh. And then the other side, Manasseh's got a huge amount of territory. So that those were those were the tribes. So often the north is referred to as Joseph. Ephraim's the most powerful tribe. So Ephraim is also sometimes used as just a name for the northern kingdom. So they've as as the northern kingdom, northern part of Israel and Ephraim became stronger than the Amorites were kept from pushing them back anymore. And uh, they were put under tribute. And then in Judge, verse 36, now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akravim from Selah and upwards. And I'm not sure exactly where that was, but that would be along this line pretty much that beyond to the west, of, I mean to the east of that would be into the hill country. So these maps indicate this. Here's Dan way up in the top. Of, no, you can't read it. But it says Laish in parentheses underneath because that's the original name. Except in Judges, it's or in Joshua, it's mentioned as Lisham, but it's the same place. And so over here you have Dan in the north, and then down here you have uh, uh, Jerusalem here, and this is the tribal area of Dan, and you see it a little more in this in this uh, blow up. So what happens here is that. Uh, Dan has failed, and they don't have a, have their land. They don't have any land. They have completely failed, so they're uh, so they're 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 lost. They have failed because they uh, failed to take their territory. So as we look at this um, outline of this next chapter, you can break it into two sections, and the first uh, uh, ten verses really describe the recon mission of these five uh, scouts. Uh, that's what they are. They decide to send out five men uh, to spy out the land. Well, they're not spying it out like a CIA agent or FBI agent might be a spy. Uh, they are scouting it out. It's a re- reconnaissance mission, trying to find some land that they can steal from somebody else because they couldn't trust God to get what he had given them. Interesting uh, analogy here. So uh, that's the first 10 verses, and then we have the description of the migration of the tribe in verses 11 to 31, which can be broken down into four sections. The trek of the Danites to the hill country of Ephraim in 11, 12, and 13, and then the encounter uh, with the Levite in 18, 14 to 20, and then the encounter with Micah, and uh, in 1821 to 26, and they basically are going to steal the priest and all the everything that Micah has made to have his own little uh, ritual area and his own little uh, sanctuary, and then they're going to uh, go back and tell the tribe and move everybody up to up to Laish. So we're told in verse one: in those days there was no king. In Israel, and that meant that they had rejected God as their king, and so there was no ultimate authority. And 
in those days the tribe of the Danites were seeking, was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. They're, they're homeless. You've got this large tribe of Jews that are homeless because everybody else pretty much was able to take a good section of their land, but they couldn't because they didn't, they failed to trust God. And so, um, the writer says, for until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. And what that means is that uh, they had not trusted God, and so they had not been able to take that land. Now, at this point, we see an analogy with some things that go on in, in the Christian life in the New Testament. We have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. It's ours, potentially. It is ours positionally in Christ. But we have to grow in spiritual maturity to to take it, to um, make it so that it becomes distributed to us because God isn't going to distribute those blessings to us if we're not mature enough to handle them. It's sort of like this. If you were very wealthy and finally your wife had a son and you had just unbelievable amounts of money, you make Bill Gates look like a pauper, and you want to give things to your son, but you know that if you give them to him when he's not ready for it, that it'll destroy him. So even though you've bought him, bought him a classic Rolls Royce, you're not going to give him the keys until he's old enough and mature enough to be able to responsibly take care of it, which may not be until he's 30 or 40. And so uh, that's what God has done. Th- those blessings are ours. They have our name on it. But if we don't grow to maturity, God doesn't distribute those blessings to us. He's already blessed. And this is what is happening to the Danites is they didn't trust God. So even though that land is theirs and in the millennial kingdom, that's where they will, their tribe will be. They don't get it because they haven't trusted in God. And under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, if the rest of the tribes don't stay faithful and loyal uh, to the Lord and grow spiritually, then God's going to take their land away from them too. So there's a lot of parallels with what can happen in, in the Christian life. So what, what they decide to do, because they need to find a home and they need to find, uh, find some land that they can steal from somebody else, uh, we read in verse 2, So the sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men, from Zorah and Eshtel, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, Go search the land. That's their mission. Go fi- search the land, find the land. And they came, uh, as Calvinist luck would have it, they come to Micah's house to begin with. And this is going to see, take us through this whole episode of apostasy. Because you see in chapter 17, we saw that the apostasy of Micah uh, was such that it led to him uh, expanding his influence over the Levite, who is now his private priest. And so it's not only the family of Micah and his mother, but also the Levite. And now the tribe of Dan is going to come. They're going to find the Levite in this little sanctuary, this good luck charm. And they're going to take it, and they're going to uh, take him, and they're going to go north to, um, to Laish, conquer it, and they're going to build a, a, um, a sanctuary there that is in competition with the central sanctuary of God in Shiloh. And that apostasy will eventually spread not only through the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom. When the the kingdom split and Jeroboam in the north declares the independence of those ten tribes, one of the first things he recognizes is that he can't have all of his people trekking down to Jerusalem three times a year to worship with all of the Jews in the southern kingdom. That will destroy the unity of the northern kingdom. And he has, they, he has to set up their own separate 
uh, religious system. And so he creates two golden calves, like the golden calf that, that Aaron had built, and he puts one in the south in Bethel, which is 11 miles north of Jerusalem, and then he puts the other one in the north at Dan because there's already this apostate sanctuary there. So this all goes back to what happens in this 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 uh, chapter, and we'll see some pictures of that as as we go through this. And what's interesting here, it's, it calls them uh, valiant men, and uh, uses a term in the Hebrew that indicates a great great warriors. Do you get the joke? They couldn't take their own land away from the Amorites. They couldn't trust God. They're not great warriors. They're a bunch of failures. And yet, so there's a little tongue-in-cheek divine humor here. Uh, Valiant men from Zorah and Eshtel to spy out the land, and they're, they're really failures. So here's some pictures for you. This is the... Uh, the the southern part of the hill country, you have Zorah over here and Eshtel over here. Zorah was where uh, Samson was from. And so you can see these, uh, what that land looked like. And here's another uh, picture uh, not far from them where you see Zorah is still up here, Eshtel's here, and this yellow line depicts the boundary between the tribe of Dan and the tribe of, of Judah, and then down in the foreground is, is Beth, Beth Shemesh. Verse 3, we read, When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite, and they turned aside there and said to him, Who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? Now, this is interesting structure here. It, it, they haven't lodged there yet. They they come up and they meet um, Micah, and they meet this Levite. What do they do? They start asking him questions. They they they're asking him, "Who brought you here? Where are you doing here? Why are you here? How long have you been here? You know all these detailed questions." So they're in. What are they doing? They're investigating him, right? Now, the reason I say all of that is because the word that is translated recognized does and can mean that. It's the Hebrew word nakar, and if you look it up in a, uh, your respectable Hebrew dictionaries, it will uh, list to recognize, to disguise, or to treat something as foreign. Now, those do not necessarily have a common base to those three senses, but in the uh, Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, which is about the best lexicon we have right now, there's a new one called the Classical Dictionary of Hebrew, uh, which has just come out in the last, I guess, 10 years or so. But the hifil stem means to inspect carefully, uh, to investigate. But they point out that it could also mean to recognize. So there's debate over just what this means. But I think that when you look at the context of verse 3, what are they doing by asking those questions? They're investigating. They're carefully, they're trying to find out who this guy is, where he came from, what he's doing there. Not so much that they recognized his voice. Now, most people will point out that if they recognize a voice and somehow maybe this priest had migrated through part of their territory and they knew something about it, about him but contextually it seems like investigate is the best answer so they start uh, start to ask him a lot of questions and I'm not really sure um, that they're asking uh, asking the right questions and so um, the ideal questions would be who brought you here and um, uh, he should have responded. I mean, the, the Levite should have said, well, wh- who brought you here? Why are you here? What are you doing in this place? This isn't your, your territory. Uh, what, are you, what do you have to do here? He should have responded to that, but he's apostate, so he's not concerned. And in the same way, they're not evaluating his answers at all 
uh, either. And uh, whatever his answers were, they should have been saying, well, wait a minute. You're supposed to be working at the central sanctuary, which at that time was in Shiloh at the tabernacle, and you should not be having a second sanctuary here. There's only one, and they should be questioning it. But see, they're apostates, so they're uh, because they've already rejected God and they're not trusting God, they've become very open to other religious ideas. So they're open to religious syncretism, and they just fall right right into him. And so he basically answers them by saying, well, Micah did this for me, and he hired me. He When it says thus and so, that's just summarizing what happened. I came here, and Micah had a... Um, had an idol, and he needed a priest, and he um, needed to make an ephod, and so I helped him out with those things, and he made me made me a priest. So instead of them saying, "Well, you're an apostate, you sh- you're you're guilty of a capital crime, and you need to be executed," they say, "Well, great, you know something about spiritual things, isn't that wonderful? Why don't you ask God what we should do?" I mean, that's like going to your neighborhood fortune teller. And so they um, they want to know, should we go on this journey and be prosperous? Well, they ought to know that they shouldn't because they're already violating God's commands. See, that's a funny thing I found as a pastor is you have a lot of people who are at a crossroads in their lives. and They say, what does God want me to do? So it's a little late to ask that question. We should have asked that 5, 10, 15 years ago, but we can re you know, reorient your course of life at this point. Uh, so they're, they're, what, the God they want him to inquire of is anybody's guess. So the priest tells them, go in peace. Isn't it interesting? God is always for peace and world peace and everything else. And so it's okay. Whatever you want to do, just fine with God. And the presence of the Lord will be with you on your way. So the five men departed, and they came to Laish. So they're all, they walked a long ways. That's probably about 40 or 50 miles up to Laish. And they saw the people there living, and they were Phoenicians from the coast. Okay, so let's go back here for a minute. I'm going to show you that map. They're here at Laish. And the people that are there are from along the coast over here. In, they're Phoenicians. And so they're from along the coast, and they've got an outpost here uh, at at um, at Dan. I mean at Laish. And we know from Scripture this is historical, accurate. We have in the uh, record of Thutmose the Third's campaign uh, at the Karnak Temple. Uh, there, I believe that's in Luxor. They have mentioned these cities that he conquered, and he mentions Hatzor as well as Laish. So these are historically accurate places. Also, when we um, um, that, that, that's at Karnak, not at not at Luxor. Um, also, when we have been there. First time we went there, this was all, there was scaffolding everywhere as they were restoring this. But this is an ancient Canaanite gate that would have been there when it was Laish and would have been there. Remember, the other significant part about Laish is this is where Abraham chased the five kings, their armies, and all of the uh, hostages that they had taken and slaves they had taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and the other cities of the plain. So the, uh, the the army of the five kings from the Babylonian era came along and gathered up all the LGBTQ crowd over in Sodom and Gomorrah and took them away as prisoners. And then Abraham, showing tremendous grace orientation, goes up there not only to rescue Lot, but also to rescue uh, the king of Sodom and all of his people. And that battle was right there at Laish, and this gate would have been there when Abraham was there. That's an old gate. Our gates won't last that long. 
So this is uh, the high place now. This is an aerial view looking down. What they have here uh, over this way is uh, Mount Carmel. You can see the snow up there. That's the only area to go skiing in Israel. And you have the um, uh, high place of Jeroboam is over here. You have the gate over here, and then there's some other gates. So it was on this hilltop that you had... Uh, had Laish. And this is a beautiful area. It's one of my favorite places to go on a trip to Israel because you're you're in a nature preserve and there's a lot of flowing water because it's up at the headwaters of the Jordan River and you get to walk along and hear the water. And it's just a beautiful place to go and to visit. So they uh, they fell in love with the area and decided that they needed to take it for themselves so that uh, so when they came back uh, and gave their report, they say, well, we found a place and we can take them. We need to just go up there and we can wipe out those Phoenicians and we can take over and that can be our city. So that's what they decided in verse 9. Let's go up against them for we have seen the land and it's very good. Uh, would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. When you go, you'll come to a secure people and a large land for God has given it into your hands. Just another way of showing that apostate people still use the name of God. They want to put God's blessing on everything. But they're totally divorced from God because as far as their lives are concerned, God doesn't exist. God is really dead, but he's just a good luck charm. Verse 11, we read, So 600 men of the family of the Danites uh, went from there, from Zorah and Eshtel, armed with weapons of war. Then they went up and camped in Kiriath-Jerim, in in Judah, and this is right outside of Jerusalem. If you've been, those of you who've been on the Israel trip, the last night we go there to right there at Kiryat Jerim and have our uh, last supper uh, at that at that Arab restaurant. It's very good. So that's uh, Kiryat Jerim, right outside of Jerusalem, and right next to Mahanadon, which was mentioned. That's one of the places that uh, Samson went to. So they passed there in the mountains to Ephraim, and they came up to uh, Ephraim's house. And then the five men who had gone out there said to their brethren, they said, Listen, do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, teraphim, and a carved image? They have an idol. Uh, Now, therefore, what do you think we should do about that? Now, if they weren't apostate, they know they should destroy it. But don't, they think, oh, we found a treasure trove. It's going to be a good luck charm. If we have that, we can get manipulate God to bless us, which is what a lot of people think God's good for is manipulating him. So they turned aside, came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war this is just like a, a gang moving into the neighborhood and intimidating everybody and taking exactly what they what they wanted. Things really haven't changed a whole lot. So they were there to, to take away what um, Micah had had built. So the five men had gone to spy out the land. They came there and they took. They just stole the image, the the idol, the ephod, the teraphim. And the priest stood there, there wasn't anything he could do about it. And so uh, in verse 18, when these went into Micah's house and took all of the religious paraphernalia, the idol, the ephod, and the household idols, um, they said to them, um, and they said to him, be quiet, put your hand over your mouth and come with us to the Levitical priest. And be a father and a priest to us. Isn't that the same thing that Micah said to him? Be a father and a priest to me. And I pointed out that, that often they would address a prophet as a father. So this is talking to him as being like a spiritual father for them. You're going to be our, our spiritual guide, our spiritual leader. Uh, isn't it going to be better for you to be a priest for us than to just be a priest for the household of one man? So they turned and they departed. And they put their little ones, they have, they have order in their way in which they organize, and they move uh, from the house of Micah up toward, um, up toward Laish. And they called out to the children of Dan with them, and they turned aside and said to Micah, What ails you that you've gathered um, such a company? 
And so he said, that's Micah, said, well, you've taken away my God. So he's got some of his neighbors and friends and come after them. And he's, they said, uh, you've taken my gods, which I made. Isn't that a good statement? Think about that. You stole the gods that I made. I made these gods with my bare hands. That's how Isaiah makes fun of the idols. Says, so you go out in the woods, you cut down a big tree, you have, a, you have a long tree trunk, you cut it in half, you chop up the wood on one half and you go burn it for warmth and you chop up and you carve out the other half and you bow down and worship it. Are you crazy? See, that's the blindness of idolatry. So then, the, so they intimidate them and um, and threaten him, so and bully him. So he goes away. Verse twenty six. They go on their way, and Micah saw that they were too strong for him, and he turned back and went home. Then we read in verse twenty seven. They took the things Micah had made. And the priest who belonged to him went to Laish to a people quiet and secure. They weren't bothering anybody. They're not, as far as I can tell, they're not under the ban. And they go up there and they burn the city, strike them, destroy them, have a massacre, annihilate them. And there's no deliverer because nobody's going to come over from the coast from Tyre and Sidon to rescue them. And so then they rebuilt a city there. And they lived there, and they renamed the city Dan after uh, their father and after their tribe. And But formerly, the name of the city was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves a carved image, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. That's what it says in the text. But the problem is there's, a te- there's some significant textual variance. And it is believed by many scholars that the N was inserted into the word. So remember, there are only consonants in Hebrew. So Moses is M-S, it's a sheen, Moshe. You have a mem and a sheen. And what you have here is a mem and a sheen, but if you put an in between them, it changes it. And it can be, uh, re- you put new vowels in it, and it becomes Minasha, Manasseh. So why would they do that? Well, how could Moses have an apostate grandson? This doesn't sh- show good on Moses, so they took him out. But you have a number of other older manuscripts, Lex uh, Septuagint, other manuscripts that are ba- tra- uh, that are translations of older Hebrew uh, texts that have it as Moses, and that's the punchline. This is Moses' grandson, who's the priest, and so um, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Man- uh, Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. Notice that. So from now, this point until 722, when the Assyrians uh, destroy the northern kingdom, the priests in this line are in charge of that apostate worship site up in the northern part uh, of Israel. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. That's the key verse for understanding all of this, is you see that apostasy that, be, that infects the whole northern kingdom because of the apostasy of one man. And that's what we're supposed to learn. It doesn't take a lot of people over time to change a whole civilization away from their spiritual foundation. And we've seen the same thing in the history of Western civilization. Here is a picture of the site, the archaeological site there at, uh, at Dan. And you can see in the middle there's a metal frame here that they've constructed to give you an idea, to give us an idea of what, of the size of the altar that, that was there. And uh, so this is uh, just a great reconstruction of the site, of course, that was developed later during the 
uh, time of the kingdom of, of Israel. So what we've seen in this episode in chapter seven, uh, 17 and 18 is how the nation goes apostate, their priesthood goes apostate, and when the spiritual life of the nation is apostate, there's no one to call them back to the truth, no one to teach them the law. And so the nation is going to rot from the inside out. So we'll see one more example of that when we get into the last three chapters, and it leads to a civil war that almost completely destroys the tribe of Benjamin in uh, chapters 19, 20, and 21. Now let me tell you what's going to happen after we finish. We'll finish in about three weeks. I'm assuming it'll take about three lessons to go through those three chapters, lots of lots of interesting stuff there. But when we finish then, and I announced this some time back, and I want you to prepare for this, we're going to go through the uh, interlocked material. So I'm going to ask Barb that, because I'm mentioning this, that you would put a link to that on on the uh, on the website uh, with this with this um, with this lesson. And what we're going to do is you go to that website and all of the notes are there. So you can just download the notes. There's no cost. You can download the notes. They have all the, all the illustrations, all the pictures and everything. And you can begin to read through those, those notes. And we will try to take two, not more than three weeks to go through some of those chapters. Now there's an opening chapter that's an overview. And that'll probably take us three weeks to go through that overview. And then we'll start going through the first lesson, second lesson. And I'm going to, t- you're, you're, you're probably going to get a lot more out of it than you normally do because I'm going to try to teach this to give the teachers in the lower elementary age range a better idea of how to teach this, how to bring it down. Because it's hard when you listen to Charlie teach, and, and a lot of people would say, well, Charlie teaches a framework. That's, that's like listening to a professor in graduate school. How do I take that and break it down to teach a, sec, a 10 or 11, 12-year-old? And, and, um, and then you listen to these lessons, and that's supposed that that's really targeting about a 15, 16, 17-year-old. But these are, must be smart 15, 16, and 17-year-olds because it's it's still, uh, I think, over the head of a, a lot of American 15, 16, 17-year-olds today, unfortunately. And so I want to help the teachers give them ideas on how they can teach as well as parents. Because this is foundational material. It's sort of like for the next uh, two to, I'd say, two to three years, um, we're going. It's going to be a lot like a survey of the Bible. So there's going to be this kind of overview of the history and the events and the doctrines of of the Bible, the main main ideas, main main uh, fundamental doctrines, and then then we will go on to something else after we finish. So it focuses some on theology, some on um, apologetics. It focuses some on just understanding the main people and the main events and why they are important. And all of the major doctrines in Scripture are connected to, number one, key people, and number two, key places. God is, God connects these things to specific places. So there are certain things that are learned about God in the Garden of Eden. And then there are certain things that are learned about God uh, later on when Abraham goes to Shechem, and then he goes to Bethel, and then he goes down to Beersheba. Well, why are those places important? Because God spoke to Abraham, gave him special revelation there, and there are important things that happen there to teach us things about God and God's plan and God's purposes. And in Egypt, there were specific things that were learned about God in Egypt and at Mount Sinai. So we're just going to go hit those high points, but it's going to be a, a good foundation for a lot of people to listen to uh, for the years to come. Okay, and, and that's what I'm really looking to is I don't have time to go teach another series of classes to train teachers. So uh, we're going to train teachers and parents and grandparents so that you can better train your your children and your grandchildren uh, in the 
in the uh, coming coming years. And I think that you'll get a lot out of it. So you can get that. You can re- remember this and start downloading some of that material now and start reading it. And then I will teach it. I'm not going to be reading through the material, but I'm going to be teaching that and bringing out some things that uh, not only how to teach it, how to explain it to kids, but also the, it's it's significant in I'll embellish on it a little bit. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, uh, to focus on them, and to understand the anatomy of the collapse of the civilization, of the the rot that occurs internally in a culture that that after that rot has occurred, the building just can't stand. And we see that happening now, but we also have many examples in history where things turned around because people turned back to you. And so we don't know which way we're going to go, but we know we have to be prepared for either one. And that means we have to pursue our spiritual growth and and knowledge of Scripture so that we can uh, truly glorify you and be uh, as much as we can a part of the solution and not the problem. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.